You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review, Election Recap. After all the bluster and bullshit, Election Day 2020 is finally upon us, and there will be no mass repudiation of Donald J. Trump. The Democratic pipe dream of an early Biden landslide turned out to be just that. We kept hearing about a coming blue wave that would sweep the Republicans out of power and realign politics for a generation. This did not happen. Trump overperformed with his MAGA army of same-day voters in rural areas and held on to crucial battleground states like Florida, Ohio, and Texas. The predicted congressional bloodbath did not come to pass, and the Senate remains firmly in the control of Mitch McConnell. The country is as divided as ever, and we're in for a prolonged fight for the soul of this country. As of this recording, there are still millions of votes yet to be counted. While the prognosis looks good for Joe Biden, Trump has also seen the numbers and is beginning to sow chaos with his call to stop the vote. I predicted this in earlier episodes. I know Donald Trump better than he knows himself and knew that he would come out and declare victory before the vote had even been tallied. The president, though, last night did something that he said he would not do falsely and prematurely declaring victory. First, though, Let's look at how the evening played out. In place of the promised blue wave came the fearsome red mirage of election day votes from Trump, which showed lopsided leads in crucial battleground states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. For Biden, it was instead all about what sports commentators called winning ugly. Would I have liked to see an early landslide in a total Trump humiliation? Of course. I want the man to feel the slings and arrows of everyone's he's trampled, abused and discarded. We must now just hope for victory. The narrow path is the only path, and it's the same path that was four years ago. With the exception of Arizona, the map will not be expanded. But a win is a win, and that's all that matters at this moment. Once all the votes are counted and Trump is defeated, even by the slightest of margins, he's fucking out. But still, the waiting is excruciating, and it's only gonna get worse as Trump unleashes his plague of lawyers. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. Elections are all about the math. Candidates don't just win states. Instead, they slug it out county by county. For Biden, the game is all about running up the vote in the cities and the suburbs and shrinking the Trump margins in rural areas. And while the early voting was strong and impressive, Trump's MAGA army turned out as promised on election day, giving him a strong early evening performance. Trump remained remarkably restrained for most of the day, and it seemed that he might actually let the election play out. 
But at around 1 a.m., as the election slowed to a crawl and votes were being counted ballot by ballot, he started his onslaught. We are a big. They're trying to steal the election. We will never let them do it. Voters cannot be cast after the polls are closed. Never mind that once he was spouting pure, unadulterated bullshit, it was time for the toddler-in-chief to have his temper tantrum. Then at 2.30 a.m., the president walked out behind a Trump train consisting of his children and Melania to the sounds of Hail to the Chief, announcing that he was on the brink of victory. President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. He called upon the Supreme Court to stop the vote. He claimed victory in Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania when it was still too close to call, with millions of ballots yet to be counted. He knows those remaining votes favor Biden, and he's planning to see that whatever comes next will be fraudulent and illegitimate. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at four o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. His MAGA army has since taken to social media and the right-wing ecosystem to rage against the count in his name. The nightmare scenario has now come to pass. What happens next is anyone's guess. But what President Trump just said was undemocratic and false and premature. Perhaps this is actually less about Trump and more about the death of the American dream for millions of Americans. That the promise of a prosperous middle class propped up by manufacturing and labor, where a person with a high school diploma could go from the classroom to the steel mill or the factory line and earn a decent wage, no longer exists. It's replacement. The vaunted information age and the rising economic inequality it has wrought has created a vacuum in the middle. The sense of American invincibility has been shattered. So we cling to the totems of an earlier age. Donald Trump wants to turn back the clock to the America of his youth. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. His idea of the American dream is rooted in the post-war America of the 1950s and early 1960s, when a majority white America led the world. In his idealized reactionary view, the old rules and hierarchy are restored. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Things will once again make sense. Somehow, the factories will reopen and the jobs will return. But these are the empty promises of an opportunist preying upon the vulnerable and economically insecure. 
Trump sold himself as the savior of this forgotten America. His rallies have become grievance points for the vast unwinding of an angry populace. Without any real answers, he instead demonizes minorities and immigrants, sows chaos and fear, all while preaching law and order. Conspiracy and alternative facts have replaced expertise and knowledge. Don't tell anybody, but let me wait till a little bit after the election. The great mystery at the heart of Trumpism is his ability to conjure complete and total fealty from a group of people he actually despises. Even more, he has gotten them to sign their own death warrants with policies that strike against their very own economic self-interest. Beyond that, he is literally killing them in droves at his rallies. A recent report showed how MAGA gatherings have been responsible for some 700 deaths during the campaign season alone. Still, they voted for him and record numbers and are willing to go to their graves with him as well. I believe there he is a gift from God that's trying to save our country. My great fear now is that the threat of chaos and violence that has followed this campaign will now come to pass. Trump is mobilizing his MAGA army with historic pronouncements of election theft. He's appealing to these groups to not let themselves become disenfranchised. We know by now that these aren't just coded dog whistles, but an actual rallying cry. At any moment, we could possibly see the beginning of a Trump-led insurrection as their dare leader continues to lose the vote. We're here to use that Second Amendment to protect the First Amendment if it comes down to that on November 4th. With this in mind, I turn to my next guest, Natasha Bertrand. She currently serves as the national security correspondent for Politico and as a political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. Today, she joins Maya Culpa to help make sense of this election and what might come to pass in the days to follow. Let's listen now to that conversation. Natasha, so good to speak to you. It's been a long time. Well, actually, not that long. You called and interviewed me not too many days ago on a couple of issues. <laughs> so I want to jump right into a couple. It's so it's weird, isn't it? Right now you're being interviewed. It is. The tables have turned. <laughs> we hope that they turn today, too, um, with some more and some other more pressing issues like called the election. But this morning you tweeted a press release from the Biden campaign manager, Jennifer O'Malley Dillon about the actions the president took earlier this morning at 2.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Trump addressed the country from the White House to air grievances about suspected voter fraud and to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the, of the election. I can't think of another time in history when the president or anyone sought to stop an election from proceeding and disenfranchise millions. The insane has really come true. And I'm sure you're hearing from everyone in Washington today about where this is all headed. But where and how do you think this is going to end? Well, it seems like as the mail-in ballots are counted, Joe Biden is increasing his lead. And that is why we see some panic coming out of Trump and his campaign about the continuation of the tallying of these votes, because they see that the mail-in ballots are tending more towards Democrats, which is to be expected because the president has been demonizing mail-in voting for several months now and discouraging his supporters from doing that. So the election day results were 
predictably very much favoring Trump. And now that the, you know, the ballots are coming in, we're seeing um, Biden's lead widening. So I think that, you know, right now it looks like Biden is going to take Michigan. It looks like he could take Nevada waiting on Pennsylvania. That's a little bit more up in the air. Um, but if he wins Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, uh, and he's already won Arizona, a couple of places have already called that race, then that's his path. Um, it's that's the whole ball game. So it's it's looking like this is going to be decided in his favor. But the president is not going to go down easily, uh, as I'm sure you can attest to. He is already trying to undermine the legitimacy of the the voting. He's saying that the mail-in ballots, you know, that they should not be counted, uh, that this whole thing is rigged, and that is going to be one of the more dangerous things that we see going into the next few weeks and months because it's going to make the country even more divided than it already was. Well, if you think about it, what's crazy is I was sitting and listening early, early on this morning because I couldn't sleep last night. And all of a sudden, I see the president turning around saying that he's going to take this case to the Supreme Court and that he's going to challenge all of the ballots and all of the states where he's losing now on the basis of ballot fraud. What I find interesting is the fact that, and you're probably aware of this, that's not the way the system works. He doesn't get to just file an action with the Supreme Court. Correct. So it makes no sense what he said last night. I think that was probably just more for the people in the room that he was pandering to than actual uh, anything that his legal team is actually going to be able to do because he can't just appeal directly to the Supreme Court to stop the counting of votes uh, over the next few days. And that's what he implied that he wanted to do last night. That just makes no sense. They could, his team could uh, challenge the legitimacy of certain ballots that arrive in certain counties and certain states. And they could drag that throughout, you know, through the courts and really have that drag out for a while. But the idea that he can just have the Supreme Court rule on stopping the counting is according to all the legal experts I've spoken to, completely nonsensical. So I think that was more just red meat that he was throwing to his base and, and kind of, you know, just just keeping the confidence up and saying, look, we have Amy Coney Barrett on the court now. You know, the Supreme Court's going to rule in our favor no matter what. Um, unless one of these local state and local challenges actually gets to the Supreme Court, it's very unlikely that, you know, anything is going to stop uh, the counting of these mail-in ballots. Yeah, well, God forbid he would actually say something that's accurate instead of this passing on of more misinformation and this disinformation campaign. But the election erased any hope for a blue wave that would repudiate the president and the Republicans who supported him. There will be no generational political realignment. Instead, right now, we are more divided than ever. The red states redder and the blue states are now bluer. How do you how do you think that we govern through this moment in history? It's a great question. Um, it seems like Biden, if he wins, is going to have to deal with a Republican controlled Senate. It's looking more and more likely that the Senate that the Senate is going to stay Republican and a House that has will still be controlled by Democrats, but will have a very powerful minority because Republicans have picked up seats in the House, um, which was also very bad news for Democrats who thought that they were actually going to widen their their margins in the House and the Senate. Um, so it's going to be really tough for Biden to 
have any of his, you know, policy agenda enacted, um, you know, short of executive orders if he if he wins uh, the presidency. Um, so governing is going to be tough. I think that what a lot of Biden voters and Democrats are most concerned about right now is just getting Trump out um, and kind of having that cleanse of, you know, the president and his allies who have filled the intelligence community, the defense community, you know, all areas of government at this point. And just having kind of a reset um, short of, you know, advancing certain policy goals that that Biden has. So but it's it's going to be really hard. And I think the pollsters are going to be facing a reckoning as well, because there was a lot of anticipation, especially in the media, because of this this polling that showed that it was going to be very much a landslide, that there was going to be this blue wave, as you said. And that really has not panned out so far. It's much, much closer than we thought. And it was very unexpected because of the way that the president has handled the pandemic. You know, over 230,000 people have died. Um, the economy is, is you know, in the gutter, making a slight comeback, but it's the worst it's been. So it was surprising to see that it's this narrow. And it just shows that, you know, people are entrenched. They're so entrenched. Um, Republicans who were you know not expected to win in key House and Senate races have actually held on or gained seats, um, and and that's surprising. And I think that you know if this the last four years have not changed people's minds um, about the Republican Party about Trumpism, then you know what will? Um, and it's pretty amazing that Biden you know if he wins the presidency that he was able to unseat an incumbent because that's very rare in politics and that should that's nothing to sniff at. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's he's he's going to have to govern a country that is very much um, in favor of Trumpism. Yeah, because as you just said, you know, so much has been spoken now about how haunted the Democrats are about the 2016 loss. And Biden may still very well lose. It certainly speaks to the issue, as you just said, of polling and its accuracy. I can't imagine just how is it that everyone has gotten it wrong again and spoke of this decisive (laughs) Biden victory when it appears that they will likely get decided in the courts? I mean, what is it that these pollsters or these polling companies are doing that just it's just so wrong? I mean, I don't even have words to describe just how wrong that they have been. You start yeah. seeing double digits by 12 points, by 14 points. You know, Biden leading in national polls, if it was run today, that he would be winning by 11 you know, percent. And now you're basically neck and neck. And I've said that several times, that I believe the popular vote will go to Joe Biden. But I said the electoral vote is so close here. And that's why Trump is talking about challenging ballots because we had this unprecedented mail-in ballot because of whether it's COVID or people just don't want to go to these polling stations for whatever the reason may be. But it's un- it's unprecedented. Mm-hmm. What are they getting wrong? And how do we how do they change? Because they had four years to get it right and they got it wrong again. I, I don't know. What am I missing? You tell me. Yeah, so I think a lot of great points. I think you're absolutely right that this was not as anticipated. Um, there were a few things to their credit that they were right about, such as that, you know, it would really come down to key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, that that has panned out. Um, it has panned out that Joe Biden, you know, has uh, kept the lead in the popular vote. Um, but, you know, I think 
what what they're going to have to refocus on and what I've seen some you know political experts point to is just focusing on having polling efforts focus on one to two or three states at a time and just really, really knowing particular states so that they have a better idea of, you know, instead of looking at the entire map all at once for four years, they can really focus in on the preferences of voters, especially given, you know, Trumpism, because a lot of people are not comfortable telling pollsters that they are Trump supporters. And that is genuinely the case of the shy Trump voter. I mean, people are embarrassed to tell the pollsters that they are supportive of him. So that's been a unique, I think, problem for pollsters with regard to someone that voters just are embarrassed to to say that they support. Um, So maybe if Trump is defeated this time around, we'll see polling start to get a little bit more back on track. If again, they start focusing more on these narrow areas and, and smaller and smaller areas and just focusing on particular states at a time rather than trying to project the entire map. Um, And also, of course, if Trump is defeated, then they won't have this problem maybe in the future, unless he runs again, um, of the of of voters not being honest with them um, about their preferences. So I think it's a combination of, of many unique things about this era in politics that we're living in. But, you know, there, there is going to have to be a reset here. You know, pollsters are really going to have to do a lot of reflecting about how they're they're moving forward because it's, you know, it's kind of inexcusable for this to be happening again after what happened in 2016. So, Natasha, in terms of a court battle, the Trump administration has neither the money nor the expertise to mount a Bush v. Gore in more than one battleground state. Talk to me about the potential Trump strategy in these states, or do you think he has none beyond casting doubt about the legitimacy of the vote count. So I think they do have some kind of a strategy. He has a pretty big army of lawyers, and so does Biden. Um, You know, Biden is not coming into this with any illusions about the amount of court challenges that Trump and his his, lawyers are going to be pushing over the next few weeks and months. But I think their their strategy is just going to be to try to – throw out a lot of these mail-in ballots to try to challenge um, the legitimacy of the ballots, either arguing that, you know, some of them may have not arrived on time, maybe some of them were unsigned, maybe, you know, all of these things that they could try to put to the court and say, you know, we have evidence that these should not be counted, for example. But that, you know, how many votes are there actually going to be that were counted that should not have been counted? Um, that's the big question here is he can't just say we don't want any mail and ballots counted, obviously. Um, so short of that, it seems like any court challenge that they that they put forward is going to be easily defeated by Biden's lawyers. Um, that's really the only strategy they have at this point, because, again, many of most of his supporters voted on election day. They did not vote by mail. So the only thing they have to hang their hat on really is disqualifying a lot of these mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. Um, So the Biden campaign seems very, very confident at this point, according to what they've told reporters, that they'll be able to very easily challenge any uh, efforts to invalidate votes in these key swing states and key districts. So uh, regardless of what Trump says, regardless of him declaring victory, saying that he'll take this to the Supreme Court, that doesn't automatically mean that any of that is actually going to happen. Um, There's going to be, you know, expectedly, there already are this morning court fights playing out. 
And ultimately, it's it's going to be decided on, you know, the, the legitimacy of these ballots that come in late. Um, but again, I don't think that they would be counted if they were illegitimate. And much of those votes are already being factored into the final tally. You know, it's really funny because on a previous show, in a previous episode, I turned around and I said that Donald Trump was going to declare victory prior to the end of the election. We all knew that there was going to be this contested ballot um, process. We all knew that Trump was um, heading in that area because that's just Donald Trump. And after I had said it so many times, all of a sudden Donald Trump started coming out and saying it. It's almost as if he was listening to these podcasts, you know. But <laughs> to me, I just, I, I just find the whole thing to be part of this, this Donald Trump new reality show that he's creating just called Captain Chaos. And that's just all that he knows how to do. It's just sowing chaos and doubt in everybody's mind. But Natasha, you highlighted an Axios article on your Twitter feed on Tuesday mm -hmm. about um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Miley, and his refusal to allow the military to become entangled in the election or even to get involved in any peaceful transition of power. Why is this important? And what does it say about the potential for post-election chaos? And do you believe the president will try to hold on to power, as I do? It's going to be tough um, because, again, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has, has said that the military is not going to get involved. It doesn't seem like that would be a way for Trump to cling to power uh, because if Biden were to be declared the, the victor, President Trump would essentially become constitutionally irrelevant on January, whatever day, inauguration day is this year and in 2021. He would just be, you know, an, an interloper in the White House at that point. So regardless of him kind of barricading himself into the White House, it there is no real legal way that he could just not leave. Um He'll, he, there's a chance that he could try, of course, and he has a lot to lose if he does not win this election. He's already been telling allies that he is worried about the prosecutors that are looking at his tax returns and his business. He is worried about potential legal exposure if he does not win re-election. So there is no doubt that he's going to try everything possible to remain in office because you know, the future of his business, of his freedom, really, he's admitted to his allies, depends on it. Um, that being said, we were writing a Politico in, gosh, June of 2019 um, about the scenarios that might play out if Trump just refuses to leave. Um, and basically, all of the experts that we spoke to say it's short of him harnessing all of the powers of the military and, you know, the National Guard coming in to keep him in the White House and, you know, him just using brute force to stay in power, there's really no way for him to just stay in the White House. Um, it's He's going to fight and it's going to be ugly, but there's, I think that the American public can rest assured that at some point, you know, the institutions are going to take over and there is going to be a transition of power to the rightful, you know, winner of this election as there always has been. Trump is going to kicking and screaming all the way um and it's again it's, it's not going to be pretty but I, I i do think that you know ultimately the, the institutions and bureaucracy will prevail here you know watching the elections all throughout the evening and through this morning 
you brought up something that's just been sitting on my mind the entire time. The fact that Donald Trump knows and talks about it openly about how prosecutors are going to come after me. They're going to take, they're going to, they're going to do it. It's going to be, it's going to, it's all wrong. It's wrong. But we all know that it's right. The man won't give up his tax returns because he knows that the second he does, there's going to be a slew of think tank accountants that are going to shred the tax returns apart, as will the government. He's going to owe hundreds of millions of dollars in back taxes, forgetting about the money that he ended up taking from you know the, the taxpayers, like 170 plus million over the years. And he knows that it's going to not just financially destroy him, but could land him in prison. And I'm just blown away that the American people, that this 50% of this country that is still voting for somebody that they know the second that they lose is going to face massive indictments because he, because of fraud and misrepresentation and tax evasion and banking fraud and insurance fraud and all sorts of frauds. And yet they still vote for him. What the hell are they thinking? <laughs> well, you know, Michael, I just think that they don't believe it. Right. I mean, I think that there we're living in such a post-truth era um, where, you know, the president himself obviously has questioned everything, uh, you know, the legitimacy of all reporting, the legitimacy of, of independent fact that people just his supporters just don't believe that he's done anything wrong, that prosecutors will have any case to bring against him, that they believe that he has paid his taxes and that even if he hasn't, then good for him because he somehow managed to gain the system. You know, I think they just don't believe anything that that they read and hear and see unless it comes from the president. So that, I think, is going to be one of the biggest challenges moving forward, especially if Biden wins, is how do you deal with this huge contingent of the population that still is living, you know, this this alternate reality? Um, but Trump obviously didn't expect to win, right? I mean, I think that you can probably speak to this as well. In 2015, he was running because he saw it as a business opportunity. And when he won, it was pretty shocking to him. And uh, he probably would never have undergone as much scrutiny of his business and professional life and his tax returns and all of that if he hadn't actually won the presidency. So now he's kind of boxed in where he is in this position where everything is under a microscope for him and has been for the last four years, whether it's his relationship with the Russians or his, you know, his, his, the emoluments uh, violations that he's um, committed with foreign countries and his businesses um, that are going to be examined very, very deeply if he loses the presidency. So, um, you know, I don't think that he ever thought he'd be in this position. And now it's kind of that desperation is setting in and that's pretty dangerous. Look, as we both know, Donald Trump from day number one started screaming fake news, fake news, fake news. And you're right. He's convinced at least 50 percent of this country that everything that the media says is a lie. Anything negative about him is a lie. Anything positive, of course, is the truth. You think the media is partially responsible for this? And I'm going to give you my reason why I think that they are. There are so many people now that are considered part of the media, which includes bloggers and individuals that just call themselves journalists, but they're really not. And then they, I'll give you an example. I'm constantly on my Twitter getting attacked. Tell us about Donald Trump's drug addiction and that he allegedly sniffs Adderall. And that's just not true. And then all of a sudden, 
I get hundreds of retweets onto this and say, you're just not telling the truth. You're afraid of Donald Trump. It has, I don't even answer them anymore because it's to answer stupidity just makes no sense to me. So instead, I just ignore them. But Donald Trump is not a drug addict. He's an asshole, but he's not a drug addict, right? So why, why are we running with the notion that, well, if Donald Trump's a drug addict, that's it. Now, I, now at least 50% of this country will not vote for him. Or Donald Trump had multiple abortions that he paid for or that I did that I paid for or did NDAs. That's also not true. I've never done an NDA and I've never been involved in any abortion on behalf of Donald Trump, right? I just, I just have not. And so when people put this stuff out there, what Trump does is he gleans onto it. He holds it and he says, you see, you see, reporters are liars, right? It's all fake news. It's all done to harm me and to this campaign and to, and to distract you from the truth. But the truth is he's such a flawed human being and his character, his moral compass is so south that he's sitting with the devil. But yet people have to make up shit all the time for what purpose? I don't know. Maybe it's for more bait clicks. Maybe it's to get more followers on their Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or what have you. But this to me is one of the problems why you have half of the country that believes the bullshit that comes out of his mouth, knowing that the president has lied to us, the American people, every single day since the day he took office. I think that's right. And I think that there are absolutely enough things and lies and, you know, misrepresentations and just attacks on democratic institutions, whether it's the press or, you know, anything that that you can just judge Trump on the merits of his policies and on his rhetoric and on just the things that he has done rather than speculating and allowing him to, to bite onto that and his supporters to bite onto that and say, look, you know, the left is just as bad, et cetera, or the media is making up things. Um, so I think, yeah, I, 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 I agree that there are no favors done to uh, Trump's critics um, when they say things like that. Um, it's been a rough uh, four years for the press, just in terms of trying to figure out how to, how to report on a president who lies constantly. And there's been a lot of um, reflection since 2016 about like what the press got wrong at that time and how, you know, we need to start learning more about Trump supporters and, you know, what makes them tick and so that we don't get blindsided again. Um, kind of like we did this time around with, uh, you know, predictions that it was going to be a landslide when it wasn't. Um, but I think that by and large, the mainstream press has been pretty responsible about how they've kind of settled into dealing with the Trump presidency, saying that he's, you know, saying lies when he when he's telling lies and saying that, you know, what he said is just not true about mail-in votes, about, you know, things that he has said over the last four years about, you know, the FBI and the Justice Department and the intelligence community. But Natasha, nobody's caring. That's the whole thing. And, and I can't understand why. I just, I truly don't understand why. Trump has a, has a very strong hold on his supporters and he has managed to, you know, undercut any notion of, of reality and of facts um, among the 50, you know, the, what, I guess 37% that consistently support him um, and the 50% or so of the country that is, you know, that is supporting him for re-election. It's, it's, 
it's a matter of, I think, the media having to rebuild trust. When, when I was at the Trump Organization, one of the things Donald used to always say is, Michael, facts don't matter. All right. If you say it over and over again, people will start to believe it. I, I want to jump to a different area and I just ask you, what are your national security sources? Because I know you have many say about the potential for interference from foreign actors now that the election has gone into overtime. In what ways do you think that they could help tip the scales for Trump? So the potential for them inserting disinformation into the narrative is high. Um, the difference between 2016 and 2020 in terms of the Russians' success in manipulating voters in 2016 and sowing disinformation and sowing chaos and hacking and dumping operations is that we are much more privy to it now. We are much more aware that the national security community is much more on alert about these kinds of things. So there's been a wholesale effort to kind of preempt that, from, whether it's from the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese. There has been a, a big effort in the intelligence and national security community to spot this, to let the American public know that it's happening, and to basically disregard it, to say, look, this is not real. It's not impacting vote tallies. It's not impacting uh, voter registration in any meaningful way. They're trying, but they're not really succeeding. So I think the biggest risk, though, in the, in the coming days and weeks is the information gap, right? So we're waiting to find out whether Biden is elected or whether Trump is going to be elected. And in that void, um, foreign adversaries could inject, you know, um, fake news and, you know, falsities that undermine people's confidence in the electoral process. So the biggest threat, I think, and many in the intelligence community would agree with this, is coming domestically, right? It's coming from the president himself. He's undermining the legitimacy of the election, and that could cause more chaos and so more division than any foreign adversary could. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the Iranians, the Russians, whoever else wants to mess with us, that they won't try. Um, whether that's successful and whether there is some kind of 11th hour operation that they could conduct to just throw everything into disarray, that remains to be seen. And, you know, national security uh, community is on very high alert looking out for that. Then in, in terms of potential post-election chaos and violence, what are your sources saying about the possibility of future domestic terrorism from these right-wing militia groups and vigilante groups as the election drags on? They're concerned. There was a lot of concern leading up to the election that some of these militia groups, vigilante groups, um, were going to actually go to the polls and were going to be intimidating voters. There was some voter intimidation that was occurring yesterday, but it there wasn't nearly as much as people expected. And it actually went a lot more smoothly um, than many in the national security community had anticipated. There was a lot of fear that perhaps, you know, guns were going to be taken to polling places and, and people were going to be threatened. And, you know, there was going to be just utter chaos across the country. And that does not seem to have played out um, in any meaningful way. So that was, that's been reassuring. I don't know, Natasha, I saw on television, they, there was one of some of these militia groups with the giant flying of the MAGA flag and the Trump, you know, um, 2020 flags that boarded up and put barricades in front of some of the polling stations in areas. I mean, and mm -hmm. then you had guys that were off to the sides that looked like they were had uh, that they had AR-15 assault rifles walking around and so on. Sounds a little intimidating to me. <laughs> I went to the to the poll the other day and I, well, I'll be honest with you. I reached out to 
um, a local detective here that has been assigned um, to me in the event that there's um, some chaos or some um, issues going on. And I reached out to him and I said, look, I'm going to be over at the 55th Street polling site. Um, you know, are there police officers there and uh, things quiet and under control? And of course, you know, they responded back. There's multiple police all over the place uh, and so on. And I ask you this question because, yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous about, you know, what's going to happen as of from today through the 23rd post the, you know, inauguration. Are there any domestic groups that keep you up at night? with their ideology and ability to mobilize, intimidate, and threaten? Definitely. And it's not just me. It's, it's you know, the intelligence community. It's the FBI. It's these groups often target law enforcement as well. So it's it's not just Trump's critics that are worried about this. It's pretty much, you know, it's law enforcement as a whole. Um, so folk groups like the Oath Keepers, for example, a far-right group um, that is that, you know, they call themselves a militia. Um, they are considered by the FBI and the intel community to be extremely dangerous. Um, it's it's these far-right groups that are, you know, consider themselves to be vigilante groups and who are organizing and who, you know, were plotting to, you know, kidnap the governor of Michigan and, and things like that. It's, it's, it's all of this that could just reach a boiling point, especially if Trump keeps saying to his supporters that it's, that, this has all been rigged and that it's all fake and that he deserved to win and that the Democrats stole it. That is the kind of rhetoric that could spur his supporters who have guns and who have been organizing and who have been, you know, saying that there's going to be violence in the streets if something bad happens like that, that Trump doesn't win re-election, that could tip this over and it could really lead to a lot of chaos. So We've seen, obviously, places boarded up in anticipation of potential riots. Um, but if I think, you know, if if Trump were to tone down the rhetoric, which it doesn't seem like he's going to, it seems like he's going to be saying that this is rigged and, and that um, it, it was being stolen by the Democrats, then, you know, maybe we could, you know, decrease some of the tension a bit. But his supporters are furious. And if you look at Twitter, if you look at some of his the rhetoric coming from his campaign, they truly believe that this is being stolen from them. And I kind of am worried about what actions his supporters might take if they if they actually feel like the Democrats have stolen the election. Well, they're going to take whatever it is that Donald Trump tells them in code, right? When he blows his dog whistle, that they each independently determine what they think that Donald Trump is trying to say to them to do. It's very dangerous. He doesn't realize... Actually, he does realize that's the scariest thing. He realizes exactly what he's doing and he's enjoying it because it seems to be working for him. The more chaos that the man sows, right, the greater it is. There was a recent piece in Politico about Trump's suburban crash um, highlighting this district in Georgia that was once held by Newt Gingrich, um, who helped usher in the modern Republican revolution and has now swung decisively Democratic. What happened here and why is it reflective of the larger suburban movement away from Trump and Republicans in general? Because I have to just say that thank God that it did happen, because if it didn't, this election would already be over and Donald Trump would yet again be our president for another chaotic four years. It's a huge swing. And, you know, to be fair, many white suburban Georgia voters 
have been holding firm with Trump, but this the suburban shift, especially among women, um, away from Trump is obviously indicative of their inability to stomach his language, his actions over the last four years, what the Republican Party has become um, just in terms of being a vehicle for the president rather than an independent political party. Um, and it shows that Trump has not expanded his base of support in any meaningful way. He's actually been losing support among the people that helped him win in 2016. Um, and you would think that if he had a little bit more discipline, if he hadn't spent the waiting days of the election, you know, attacking Fauci, criticizing the governor, governor of Michigan, saying coronavirus, you know, uh, is being uh, faked by doctors to make more money, things like that, then maybe he would have been able to hang on to some of these, these voters. But instead, he's just so all over the place constantly with so little discipline and just so focused on grievances and so focused on attacking his opponents constantly rather than actually articulating any real policy vision. Because again, he really never articulated, I mean, he has no healthcare plan. He never articulated what his policy goals are for the next four years of his second term. And it just has not resonated with particularly suburban women who who took a chance on him in 2016. So it's a big deal. It's a big shift. Um, and, you know, his his bullying and his language, I think, has a lot to do with why, you know, these moms in suburban areas are like, I don't want my kids looking at this guy and using him as a role model. Um, we thought that the presidency might change him and that perhaps this was all rhetoric and, and you know, and in, in just campaigning language in 2016. But but they've seen that it really hasn't. And that, in fact, he has not grown into the presidency. It's actually just revealed more about who he is. Um, so it's it's a big deal, and I think that that's a large reason why we're seeing, uh, you know, um, so much of the the early voting go towards Biden. Donald Trump does not articulate policy or any or any position because he doesn't have one. He doesn't spend three minutes reading a single policy memorandum so that he understands what he's talking about. His entire shtick is attacking Joe Biden, attacking Hunter Biden, and attacking Fauci and coronavirus and praising we have the best economy in U.S. history, one lie after the other. But, you know, as it related to the coronavirus, which you brought up, Deborah Burks just issued a really stark plea for more aggressive coronavirus action, which is now at odds with the White House. And while this is no surprise, how do you see the president handling the virus in the face of a potential loss? Do you fear a new level of incompetence and disinterest in the face of a lame duck presidency is going to create a bigger problem? And how scared are you about the next several months? Because I am. I mean, I just said it a few minutes ago. I am actually concerned that from today to the date after the inauguration, with Trump's dog whistle and with coronavirus and with his inability or his decision not to read memorandum or to take the opinions from science um, or scientists like Fauci or Deborah Burks or others, to me, really puts us all in a very, very dangerous place. Yeah, Michael, I mean, I think the ship has totally sailed on the president really caring about coronavirus. And I think that that is obvious by the massive rallies he's been holding, by the fact that he's mocked even some of his closest supporters, such as Laura Ingram, for wearing masks, that he's called Fauci an idiot, that he said, wait until after the election and I'll fire him. 
um, that he has actually accused doctors of overstating coronavirus so they can make more money. Um, you know, all of these things just show that he is concerned only about winning re-election, downplaying the virus um, so that his supporters don't think that he's responsible in some part um, for the, you know, more than 230,000 deaths um, that this country has suffered since the pandemic uh, came here. So I think that, you know, could it get any worse <laughs> during the next couple of months? Probably. Um, it just depends on how loud the voices are inside the administration, even if it's lame duck saying, look, we need to we need to lead by example here, but those voices are being drowned out. I mean, we have Scott Atlas now in the White House who's advising the president on coronavirus and Fauci has called him basically a disaster, saying that many of the things that Scott Atlas is preaching are totally bogus and that it's actually pretty dangerous. Um, Deborah Burks is, is sounding the alarm on this issue too. So it doesn't seem like, I mean, if Trump loses, like this is going to get any better. Um, he's pretty much already purged um, anyone around him who, you know, is is wanting to take this more seriously. With regard to the the months leading up to the inauguration and, and a transfer of power, I, I think that there's a lot of trepidation in, in the Biden campaign about whether the Trump uh, White House is even going to cooperate with them fully on a transition of power. Um, and leaving aside the fact that his supporters might take matters into their own hands and might become violent if they believe the election has been stolen, the just mere fact of, you know, Trump being petulant and not wanting to cooperate with a, uh, an incoming Biden White House, that could be a huge problem as well. Look, um, I've said it 19 months ago before the House Oversight Committee, there will never be a peaceful transition of power under Donald Trump. But I do want to look for a moment on the flip side. If Trump somehow manages to win this election and then holds on to power for another term, do you see him turning into a full on autocrat? in that he no longer feels any sense of restraint. I mean, the guy has actually gone ahead and done everything that should have eliminated him, but it has not. Do you think that he'll have any sense of restraint? And what happens and who will feel his wrath? And then finally, what's the role then of Congress? Will we then see more attempts at impeachment and other investigations? Or will it just be at this point, nothing can touch this man and the voters truly don't care? Unfortunately, Michael, I think that we will see a Trump unleashed in in the next four years. Um, this is not, you know, just the opinion of reporters who have covered him for the last five years and who have seen him not, again, uh, settling into the presidency and having the presidency kind of shape him, but vice versa, but actually the opposite. Um, but also from senior members of the intelligence community who have seen this in other countries around the world, in, in autocratic nations and, and dictatorial nations around the world who say, if President Trump, for example, former CIA director Michael Hayden, has actually said if if the president wins re-election, you know, American democracy might be in peril for forever. I mean, there have been serious alarms being sounded by former very senior national security officials who say, is Trump, you know, going to completely demolish what's left of institutions in the United States because he feels like he doesn't have anything to prove for voters in 2024. I mean, especially considering how much Republicans have been enabling him over the last four years. I mean, there there is just no real sense that there will be any checks and balances left um, apart from a Democratic House, which has not been particularly successful short of, you know, they impeached him. But 
clearly that didn't have too much of an effect on popular opinion because the race right now is extremely close. Um, and the same with the pandemic, a, a raging pandemic that has killed so many Americans. Um, clearly, you know, his supporters have stuck with him. So knowing all of that, Trump, if he wins, could go into the next four years thinking I'm invincible and I'm going to continue to place political appointees and my supporters in these very important institutional roles. And we could see just a wholesale remaking of the government. Natasha, you want to hear something that nobody has talked about? other than I, and it's going to be my prediction right here today, right? The day after election day. What's that? Between you and me. Donald Trump, <laughs> if in fact that he wins, will be looking for another term. Mm. He's going to look for a third term. Guaranteed. And I want, I want you, all my listeners to remember, you heard it here first. But I want to switch gears now, and I want to discuss one of my favorite topics, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> It was recently reported that according to Lev Parnas, Giuliani was tipped off about Hunter Biden by Russian intelligence. How deeply connected to Russian assets in the Kremlin do you believe Rudy to be? Or is he simply a very useful idiot with his own lengthy trail of compromise following him? So it could be both. He, he has a lot of shady connections with people who, according to the Treasury Department, the Trump Treasury Department, are acting as agents of the Russian government. I mean, one of Rudy's closest confidants over the last two years was just sanctioned by the Treasury for, for interfering in a 2020 election and for being a, an agent of the Russian government for the last decade. Um, so Rudy is someone who can be seen as a useful idiot by these people. And I think that they have used him as a vehicle to launder a lot of this information about Hunter Biden into the mainstream press, into, into you, you know, Fox News and OAN and all of these right-wing outlets that will just kind of take it on critically. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to believe that he doesn't realize that, you know, given everything we know about the Russians' motivations and how they want Trump to win and how they're trying again, how they have been trying to get him reelected, um, that he wouldn't understand that he's been a target um, for these people and that he is, you know, I would say wittingly at this point, because he's been warned multiple times that these people are, you know, acting as Russian agents, laundering this stuff, uh, you know, just because he is supportive of the president and basically facilitating. It's not, no, 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 Tasha, I got to interrupt you for a second. It's not about that he's interested in the president. He doesn't give a shit about the president and the president gives less than a shit about Rudy Giuliani. Rudy <laughs> is doing it because he's financially motivated. I want everyone mm. to understand that. This is all about financial gain by Rudy and for his company, Giuliani Partners. There's no doubt in my mind when it comes to that. You know, mm. one of the big problems, and, and again, I, I blame in many respects of the press on this as it relates, and it's not just Fox News or OAN or the Newsmaxes of the world. You know, you'll remember going back into 2016 when the press started to question me in regard to um, the Steele dossier, and they got it wrong from mm -hmm. the very beginning. But it was such a big story, and everybody was afraid that they were going to get scooped by the next guy, whether it be a blogger or a legitimate newspaper. It didn't matter, and they just run with it and whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop, whether it's the disinformation being put out through 
willing idiots like Rudy Giuliani and others, you know, there. what is it that the press can do in order to stop this? Because I hope that you will finally acknowledge, right? I've never been to Prague. I've actually <laughs> never been to Russia. You see, I knew that they were going to try to play me when I got to Russia. They had promised that there was a piece of land, not one, not two, but three pieces that I should come to Russia and take a look at. And I said, listen, I'll get on the next plane and go to Russia. But before I jump on a plane and travel across the planet to Russia, I want to know that you own or control the piece of property that we would be looking at. Because other than that, what am I going there for? Dinner? I don't want dinner with them. I have my wife and children and friends here. I don't need their dinners. I don't need to stay in a hotel. I'm happy at my home. And so I never went. Five different times they tried to get me and Mm -hmm. Trump to come to Russia. But I refused it because they were never able to get past my first prong, which is to show me that they either owned or controlled a piece of property that the Trump organization would have been willing to build the Trump Tower Moscow project on. And so I never went. Now, Rudy, on the other hand, for a free trip, he's off and running. Right. Yeah. What can the press do to help to stop the disinformation? And that disinformation is what eventually led to my case going from Andrew Weissman to Jeffrey Berman at the Southern District of New York. Why they did that, I have no idea. After knowing the second day, the second day that... I had never been to Prague, that I had no relationships with Russian compromats. I had no financial gain. I had no, I had nothing. Rudy, on the other hand, has financial gain. And why are they not looking deep into this? Where is the press on this? We've been investigating Rudy. And I mean, it's a good question as to whether he's being investigated, perhaps by the FBI as part of a counterintelligence investigation over his connections with the Russians. That might very well be an open case. We just don't know. We know that the intelligence community did warn Trump that Rudy was being targeted by Russians and Trump just didn't care. Um, But I agree with you that the press has been, well, we've, we've learned a lot in the last four years. And I think that we have handled the Hunter Biden story with a lot of skepticism and that's why it really hasn't taken off. And Trump actually acknowledged at a rally a couple of weeks ago that, you know, he can talk and talk and talk about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and their quote unquote corruption in Ukraine. But unless mainstream media picks it up, it's really just an echo chamber among his him and his supporters. Um, so I think the press has actually done pretty well on, on that story. Um, with regard to the Russia story in 2016, yes, there was a lot of obviously competition and it was the biggest story. Um, you know, of arguably, you know, the last 50 years in terms of Trump's relationship with the Russians and the Russians' interference in 2016, which was pretty um, aggressive and and unprecedented in in how aggressive it was. So there were a lot of mistakes that were made. Absolutely. Um, I think we've come a long way since then, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, wanting to be right rather than wanting to be first. And hopefully that will continue. There's, I mean, especially when you have to be so careful about repeating the president's lies uncritically, there's been a wholesale, I think, slowing down um, of how we report on this stuff. So there's been an evolution, whether or not that holds, whether or not it's been enough of an evolution, that's that's an outstanding question. But I, I do agree with you that there needs to be a, uh, a reflective period among the press before they start to jump to these kind of conclusions again. You, you know, Natasha, the, I 
I love this passage from Aaron Parnas's book that you highlighted in a recent political piece about Rudy trying to leave his seat during a bullfight and wanting to actually fight the bull <laughs> himself. I mean, talk about bull. What bullshit, Rudy, right? <laughs> talk to me about this and what the book ultimately reveals about Lev Parnas and his relationship with Giuliani. It's a fascinating read. It basically confirms everything that, you know, Lev Parnas and, and people who testified against the president during impeachment have been saying about his Trump first rather than, you know, America first approach to governing, which is that their entire uh, reason for being essentially Rudy Giuliani, his associates around him who were trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden was to serve the president's personal political interests rather than the um, foreign policy interests of the United States. So the book outlines many things that they did that were kind of like a shadow foreign policy, shadow State Department effort, um, things that they were doing in Venezuela, in Ukraine, um, in Turkey, that were really just to serve either Rudy Giuliani's personal financial interests or the president's personal political interests um, and, and financial when it comes to Turkey, frankly. Um, so it was it was pretty eye opening um, just how much behind the scenes kind of back dealing Rudy Giuliani was able to do without any real scrutiny um, for a long time, um, kind of undermining official U.S. foreign policy in order to further the interests of his you know, chief client, which was the president. Um, Trump ultimately obviously did get called out on that with the impeachment saga. But again, it hasn't really stuck. Rudy Giuliani is still up to his old ways, digging for dirt on Joe Biden in Ukraine with the help of Russians um, and Russian agents. And the president pretty much emerged fairly in terms of you know polling and in terms of his support on skates following impeachment. Um, so, again, the next four years, if Trump does win re-election, how, how much worse is that going to get? Well, it's going to get a lot worse because it's not just Rudy Giuliani here, right? There is a whole cast of characters mm -hmm. inside this administration that are doing exactly what Rudy is doing. Now, we, we pick on Rudy because he's just such a useful idiot to pick on. Right. I mean, you know, when he goes on television and starts ranting and raving because he probably had too many scotches in him. It's, you know, it, it becomes easy, but he's not the only one. I mean, look at the relationship between Kushner and Middle East. Look at the relationships between so many others inside the administration close, Ivanka and China. I mean, this is, it's a joke. And the funny thing is he goes ahead, Trump goes ahead and he deflects onto Biden, be it Joe or Hunter Biden, all of the things that he and his people are doing. You know, which brings me to my to my last question as we begin to wrap this up, Natasha, in terms of how they're trying to weaponize the Hunter Biden information. Can you do me a favor and walk my listeners through how this was less than an honest citizen in Delaware finding a laptop than an actual right wing disinformation campaign that was run by Giuliani and a few of the other Trump insiders? And what role did the Wall Street Journal play in killing it? Yeah, it's 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 a complicated saga, but essentially the story about Hunter Biden and his laptop and, and all of these things that were ostensibly found on it was shocked um, by Steve Bannon, by Rudy Giuliani, by uh, by people close to the president's son um, to the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal ultimately passed it along to some of its uh, reporters who deal with this kind of thing. And they looked into it and they couldn't find any role for Joe Biden in any of his son's business dealings. 
and they ultimately were not able to produce the story that that Trump's allies wanted them to. Behind Steve Bannon's back, allegedly, Rudy Giuliani went to the New York Post uh, with a story about how a Delaware repair shop, Mac repair shop owner, had come into the possession of Hunter Biden's laptop and had given it to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. And it had all of this incriminating stuff on it and these photos that were salacious and these you know, emails about his business dealing. And the New York Post then published that pretty uncritically before the Wall Street Journal could do a, a deep investigation of its own, which ultimately found, again, no evidence of, of involvement of Joe Biden in his son's business dealings. Um, but all of this was from the beginning kind of a, a last minute attempt to shift the focus away from the president's handling of coronavirus and towards Joe Biden and potentially, you know, shady dealings by his son, which the president's son was pushing relentlessly on social media, saying that, you know, Hunter Biden's corrupt, that he only got these business dealings because of his father. Which, of course, is pretty much the height of irony, right? I mean, for them to criticize Joe Biden in any way for alleged nepotism is, is highly ironic. Um, so this this effort really failed. It did not pick up. It didn't pick up because really the mainstream media could not verify any of the information on the so-called laptops because we weren't given the laptops or the hard drives or whatever Rudy Giuliani says that he had um, to examine. And we believe that's because, you know, they were obtained in a way potentially that is not is not the way that Rudy Giuliani has said he got them. Um, knowing his ties to Russian intelligence agents, uh, we were rightfully, I think, skeptical of where this material was coming from. So the plan kind of backfired. Um, it does not seem to have uh, affected any votes. Um, people didn't really seem to care in the waning days of the election. And, and Trump himself kind of acknowledged that, uh, that he was deflated by it in the rally. Look, at the end of the day, um, I don't know what it is that Donald J. Trump can do more to show the American people that he is legitimately unfit to continue to lead this country. Whether, as you stated, it's the number of deaths from coronavirus that still, as you watch the post-election you know, rallies that he's doing, or when he went to, his, to the RNC office, and they're all standing there, half of them with masks, half without. The notion that just wearing a mask is offensive to him is offensive to me. And as, and as an American citizen, somebody who knows people who have died of coronavirus, it's offensive. Put on the damn mask. If you're walking and you're by yourself, drop it down under your nose. That's okay. But if you're coming close to people, just put it on over your face. It's such a small thing. And simply because we told Donald Trump that you have to do it if you want to get this pandemic under control. No, I know better. My gut is telling me that it's a flu. It's going to go away. Let's do herd immunity. Let's let's ignore it. Fuck it. Let's just worry about the economy. That's all we care about. Right. Um, that that's my that was his path to reelection. Well. You have now the blood of many dead people on your hands, Mr. President, and he still doesn't care. And the fact that he lies to us four, five, six times a day since the day he took office, again, doesn't seem to insult the, the American people into saying this is not the man 
that needs to lead us, the fact that he has no empathy for anyone is not enough to get people to say he's not the man to lead us. When we have somebody like Joe Biden, and I'm going to ask just in closing, what is it about Joe Biden that people are having problems with that if you put Joe Biden and Donald Trump next to one another and point and say, which one is the one that we should have as the president of the United States? What is it about Joe Biden that people are saying no to? Again, I think it's the president's constantly calling him beholden to socialists on the left, right? That's gotten through to a lot of his supporters and who believe Trump when he says that Biden is going to shift the country far, far left and get rid of fracking and he's going to get rid of oil and he's going to, you know, do away with all of these things that are important um, to, you know, his supporters in Texas and elsewhere, Pennsylvania. They believe it. They believe it when he says that he is essentially, you know, a, a slave to, you know, the AOCs of his party or whatever it might be. When in fact, Joe Biden's record speaks for itself on these issues, he's actually very moderate and he tends to, to be more, much more of a conservative Democrat than anything close to resembling um, AOC and, and the more progressive part of the party. But again, I mean, he just has this ability to spew falsehoods and put it into the mainstream in a way that his supporters just lap onto. And the popular vote has been going for Joe Biden, and that speaks to you know the fact that the majority of the country does support him. But the electoral college is what matters, so we're just going to have to see how that plays out. Well, Natasha, let me thank you again for spending the hour with us and your insight. I'm lost. I'm confused. Not the way I expected that it was going to turn out to be. Who knows? You know, as as we were both saying, you know, there's all the mail-in ballots that still need to be counted. So let's just have our fingers crossed uh, over the course of the next week or two. And I, again, want to thank you for your time this morning. And please stay safe, wear a mask, and, you know, stay strong. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I awoke early on Election Day filled with a combination of nervous excitement for the possibility of a Biden victory and existential dread that Trump would secure himself for four more years. That everything we have done here might have been for naught. Would we awake on November 4th to a new America driven by decency, empathy, and expertise? Or would we slam shut the door and seal ourselves into a tomb with Donald Trump dancing on our graves? As I went to sleep, my mind raced. How could this man win again? How could we allow this fucking criminal to return to the White House and lead us further towards doom? How could so many Americans choose this paranoid path driven by disinformation and downright fucking lies? It's not possible, I kept telling myself. It's just not possible. But it was happening. Were the ghosts of 2016 that propelled Trump to victory, that vaunted silent majority of Trump voters drive a 2020 victory? Were all the polls wrong again? The real story here is a bitter division that still exists in this country. The red states are only getting redder and the blue states only getting bluer. We truly live in two Americas and for this I have no solution. I can't sit here with 100% moral conviction and denounce half the country, but I do wonder if we're missing some fundamental connection. 
How do we bridge what was once just a partisan divide, but has morphed now into an angry, impassable chasm? And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer, Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson, 